0: from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, a land-grant, space-grant, R1 research institution. Learn more at wvu.edu. Good evening from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. On the legislature today, the struggles of West Virginia's small farmers, a special report and follow-up conversation later in the program. But first, senior reporter Dave Mistich and reporter Emily Allen join us for a news update. Thank you both for being here. Two student-related bills in their houses of origin passed today, um, both after some lengthy vocal opposition. Emily, let's begin with you in the House of Delegates. Tell us about the West Virginia Students Religious Liberties Act and and the remarks that followed on that.
1: Yeah, well, a lot happened with the bill today. Um, Just a little bit of background, the bill's lead sponsor is Delegate Gary Howell. Um, He's the chair of the Government Organization Committee, and he comes from Mineral County. Uh, Last year, there was an incident where some football players were um, praying before a game in Frankfurt a uh, an, an advocacy group based out of Wisconsin um, that advocates for the separation of church and state contact the school board and so Howell has said that this bill is in response to that and basically it um, codifies you know federal protections in the first amendment um, to you, you know provide for the freedom of religious expression. Um, so his bill has sort of a model for ways that local school boards can. Um, protect your you know right to uh, express your religion and also to avoid discrimination some of those um, restrictions in this model though which is optional although the bill requests or you know mandates that Districts adopt a similar model to it. Um, Some of the restrictions, according to people who opposed the bill today or said that it wasn't ready, um, were too restrictive. Uh, You're about to hear some clips from Delegate Cody Thompson, a delegate from Randolph County, and Delegate uh, Sean Hornbuckle from Huntington. Um, Basically, they just had complaints about the language of these parameters and um, if the model took away from local control or not. So let's play those clips now.
2: The legislature does not need to be telling our county school systems who can speak at graduations, who cannot speak, for how long, and I, I just worry we're going to start getting into this, this weird area where we're not going to let students with disabilities or special needs speak and we're going to let only the upper two classmen's grades speak and leaders. I, I, I don't like that. I like uh, letting the schools make that decision. When
3: talking about this. Who is going to designate it? what is lewd, obscene, and every county is going to have their own policy? So, to me, or, or maybe some other folks, maybe some other folks, my gentleman that was talking about the LGBTQ community, potentially. and that doesn't make sense to me, but to some folks, that could be obscene. It could be lewd.
1: So, Suzanne, kind of the concern um, about the bill is that the parameters aren't specific enough. They might lead to, you know, further discrimination, which is contradictory, what the bill accomplishes, or it takes away from local control. Um, Delegate Joe Ellington, a Republican from Mercer County, chairs the Education Committee, which passed the bill last week. Um, He sort of defended the bill before, you know, they passed it out of the House, saying that the model is optional. Counties still have the option to kind of form their own... Um, you know, models for the, ensuring that this bill is accomplished. Uh, here are some remarks from Delegate Ellington now.
4: The key that it's trying to prevent is that if you have, let's say, the top three members or, or top three uh, academic people to talk, typically, but they want to exclude the third one because of their, their uh, religious uh, views, that they would only allow the top two to talk, uh, this is what this is trying to prevent. Um, so, it is trying to give it fair, that, it's, that it's, there's discretion, and it also gives it that any student has the opportunity. And As with freedom of speech, there's good and there's bad. Just like we have to deal with someone burning our American flag, that's, a, that's the negative side to freedom of speech. Uh, the example that the lady from the 32nd brought up about religious expression from a Wiccan, we may not agree with it, but they have every right to do that. And uh, as long as the forum is there for each person, the school has to be neutral.
0: Mm-hmm. Then we can whatever. You think. And so, what happened with that? Um, So it did pass
1: out of the House. It moves on to the Senate.
0: All right. Before we leave the the House today, at the end of session, when members are invited to make remarks, Delegate Eric Porterfield of Mercer County spoke, which prompted some heated uh, reaction to that. Quickly tell us about that.
1: Yeah, yesterday um, or earlier this week, uh, the Banking and Insurance Committee in the House considered a bill dealing with PEIA. Uh, The bill's only sponsor is Delegate Brandon Steele, a Republican from Raleigh County. It failed 11-11 basically due to... Uh, Delegate Eric Porterfield, a Republican from Mercer County, stepped out during the vote. Um, So there was some confrontation, you know, according to both gentlemen after the meeting about how that vote went down. Um, Delegate Porterfield said some remarks about um, there being a a confrontation, and we're going to play that now. We should also say that um, Delegate Porterfield during the last session made some remarks that might be deemed offensive to the LGBTQ plus community. So Delegate Sammy Brown said in remarks that you will also hear after this that those... um, that there are some people that have been enduring some kind of hardships throughout the session.
5: I rise concerning this bill yesterday that was in banking and insurance as well. The lead sponsor of this bill last night when it was time to go home, not liking, I guess my position or the fact I had a meeting or whatever my business was, aggressively, tried to intimidate me after intimidating another member of this House. Now I think this bill can be hashed out. I think any legislation can be hashed out. We can agree to disagree. Whether it's in my own ranks or it's on the other side of the aisle, this is not the way that we need to be doing things down here. It's not the way. I've been in constant communication with leadership about this. I've been in constant communication and had to even meet with the Capitol Police today because of my safety.
6: When we won't acknowledge that there's bigotry, when we won't acknowledge that there's hate or violence or disgusting rhetoric, that we're lifting up mistruths and making them into law, that's how we got here. And while we do have a colleague that now feels slighted, unsafe, insecure, some of us have had to do this over and over and over again, coming in day after day with that same vitriol in our faces.
0: How'd this wrap up, Emily?
1: Um, so we did contact the delegate, uh, Brandon Seal after the session. He obviously denied that there was any kind of uh, intentionally aggressive confrontation on his behalf. Um, delegate Eric Porterfield refused to name
0: who he was speaking of, so. All right. Thanks, Emily. Dave, in the, in the Senate, Senate Bill 131, the the Tim Tebow Act.
5: That's right. Yeah, it passed today on a
2: 24 to nine vote. Um, basically, this would allow uh, public or private school students or homeschool students to participate in public school uh, extracurricular activities, sports. Uh, it's named after a Heisman Trophy winner, Tim Tebow, uh, that you know fought for the right for homeschoolers to to play public school sports. Um, this, this bill had a little bit of opposition from Democrats. Like I said, there were nine votes against it. Uh, Senator Paul Hardesty was one of them. He argued that uh, this could, could, could uh, have an effect on public school enrollment. The kids that are sort of marginal students, uh, as far as grades, uh, may have to, may drop out just to participate in sports, but in the end, the bill did pass. So.
0: It passes and goes on to the House That's now. Right. Dave Mistich, Emily Allen, thank you both. Next, agriculture has been part of West Virginia's economy for hundreds of years. But today, many farmers struggle. Roxy Todd will speak with West Virginia's Commissioner of Agriculture and the chair of the Senate Agriculture Committee. But first, her visit with some West Virginia apple farmers. Some think the state may be overlooking an economic opportunity.
6: Most of the apples
7: grown in West Virginia are in the Eastern Panhandle. Katie Orr Dove's farm is one of the largest orchards in the state.
6: We produce about 205,000 bushels of apples every year, and we have about 25 different varieties.
7: Orr Dove and her family have managed to hang on to this property in their farm business for three generations.
6: My grandfather started the farm in 1954. He started with some orchards, and then he started buying adjoining orchards that were going out of business. Um, As the farmers would get older and not want to do it anymore, um, they would offer him their property for sale first because they wanted to see it kept as farmland. Um, So he expanded his farms up and down. They call this Apple Pie Ridge. Um, Really great soil for orchards. And um, he just grew from there. And then he put in his own packing facilities so he wouldn't have to pay other people to pack his fruit. So that's how we got our apple, packing shed and our peach packing shed.
7: As with all farming, there are weather challenges, and they also have to fight bugs from eating their crops.
6: I think there's always been challenges, and I just think it's the nature of farming that people overcome them. You overcome them, and you adapt, and go to the new trend, or you got a business and sell your farm.
7: And though Orr's Farm is going strong, many farmers across the state are looking to sell their businesses. West Virginia produces about 110 million pounds of apples every year, just a third of what we used to grow in 1979. Apples grown in West Virginia have traditionally been sold as eating apples, or for apple juice or applesauce. Sweet varieties like Golden Delicious apples are good for those uses. But there's a growing demand for apples that can be used to make alcoholic cider, an industry that's on the rise in the country and here in West Virginia. West Virginia now has two craft cideries that both use West Virginia apples. Here we are at Hawk Knob Cidery outside Lewisburg, West Virginia, where they buy about 80 tons of apples every year and they pay about $30,000 for those apples. Josh Bennett is owner of Hawk Knob.
2: The trends within the market indicate that while some of the large scale corporate uh, cideries are kind of plateauing, regional, Craft locally sourced ciders in uh, cideries are still uh, exponent- exponentially growing. That is the fastest growing sector in the cider industry.
7: And to make this kind of cider, Bennett says the industry needs more farmers growing craft apples.
2: If you're planting very cider-specific uh, apple varieties, you're talking about a fourfold uh, cost difference or uh, or value for those apples. The difference, say. Uh, for low grade apples of, of, of your average variety might be hundred dollars a bin. A bin is about 18 to 21 bushels. Um, if you're going to put something in that's very cider specific you might get as much as four hundred dollars for that same bin of apples. And there's huge demand for those apples. Um, so it's kind of sad to see that, that there's not more of that going on in West Virginia when we're sitting in such a, a nice apple growing climate uh, and such a cultural heritage in apple growing.
7: This year, Bennett began buying his apples from Orr's Orchard over 200 miles away because his main source of apples sold their farm.
2: So we were sourcing everything uh, within about 30 miles of the facility at Morgan Orchard, uh, and that orchard sold last year. And it didn't sell to another orchardist, it it actually closed, it sold to a a turkey farming uh, company. Um, So at a personal level, I would say that was Uh, It it was really sad to see that was one of the last commercial orchards in southern West Virginia.
7: Many people we spoke to in Greenbrier and Monroe counties say they're sad to see this 100-year-old orchard close. Suzanne Williams has a small business making jams, which she sells in shops across the state. She used to get peaches and apples from Morgan Orchard to make into some of her best-selling products, rhubarb and apple jam.
8: Yeah, Morgan Orchard was one of my absolute favorite places to go as a, as a jam maker because, you know, just walking amongst all the trees and being able to see the fruit ripening and see heirloom apple trees.
7: Now, she travels to the Eastern Panhandle to get her fruits and apples.
8: I've had to up my prices a little bit because of the um, time and travel and gas involved, so that's unfortunate.
7: She's concerned that there simply aren't enough farmers left in southern West Virginia who can keep going and make a profit.
8: I don't know that the Department of Agriculture can offer some kind of incentive um, for people starting up orchards. I just don't know if that possibility exists. Um, I just know it's tough. It's a tough business.
7: The farmers who sold Morgan Orchard did not respond to a request for an interview, and neither did the turkey farmers who bought it and bulldozed the 100-year-old heirloom apple trees.
3: Folks were, were pretty upset about the situation.
7: Brian Wickline is a WVU Extension agent in Monroe County. He tried to find a buyer who would keep Morgan Orchard open. He even contacted agriculture schools and universities out of state.
3: We had some local folks who were interested in the orchard, but just really never could come up with the funding to, to purchase it.
7: He says the story of what happened to Morgan Orchard should be a wake-up call. The reasons they couldn't find a buyer who could keep it open as an apple orchard are kind of emblematic of the struggles most farmers in West Virginia are facing.
3: I mean, uh, you know, we've got young folks that want to come back to the farm, and um, when you're not earning enough income to, to make that uh, appealing for those folks to come back, you know, when they come back, we have to be competitive financially from a business perspective. Those, those young folks have to come back and they have to worry about their health insurance. How are they gonna pay that?
7: In addition to being an extension agent, Brian Wickline is also a beef and dairy farmer. It's a lot of work. The cows have to be milked twice a day. His mornings begin at 6 a.m. His son, Ty, is considering following in his footsteps.
3: He's gonna have the opportunity to, to run quite a few head of cattle. Um, But even under those conditions, it's still going to be an economic challenge for him to be able to do that.
7: Small farms like his make up the majority of agricultural businesses across the state. Costs are rising, but the profits are not. Increasingly, more of our food comes from large industrial farms.
3: If we're able to keep those funds uh, here locally, a larger amount of those dollars would stay in the the local economy.
7: Wickline says state lawmakers could help by making it easier for small farmers to sell their products at a profit to customers locally.
3: School systems uh, getting local economy, local foods, local foods back into school systems. Uh, there's some things, local milk back into the into the systems. Um, so yeah, there's there's some, there's some things that we can do here locally that would help out
7: and they could also help farmers advertise niche products like heirloom apples to build up the brand for foods that are unique and special to the Mountain State. Good evening, I'm Roxy Todd. Joining us now are Kent Leinhart, West Virginia's Commissioner of Agriculture and Senator Dave Seipolt of Preston County, Chair of the Agriculture and Rural Development Committee. Thank you both for joining us. So are there things that lawmakers here in West Virginia could do that could help struggling small farmers across the state. Commissioner, we'll start with you.
4: Well, uh, obviously, yes, there are some things that we can do, and uh, your guest on the other film segment mentioned a couple of them. You know, one of the things that we've been talking about is how do we get the small farmer access to capital to even start a small farm or change the mode of operation of what they're doing?
7: Something like, Purchasing Purchasing land
4: uh, land or equipment, just access to capital because they have to write a business plan and a bank wants to know that they're going to make money before they'll lend the money to get started. Uh, The other thing that uh, we're doing, and we've done some of the things with the help of the uh, legislature, uh... we've done things like a cottage food bill and the fresh food act where your guest talked about getting more of those fresh foods into our schools so we just need to make sure that we get the cooperation of all agencies within the state working together and right now before the legislature are the rules for that fresh food act so that we can make that a successful uh... operation the other thing that we've done is the west virginia grown program getting to highlight those uh... products that we are grown right here or produced right here in West Virginia at a value added so that the small farms can uh, be prosperous. Mm -hmm. So there's things that we're doing, we're working with the legislature. I think we've come a long way in the last couple of years to help,
9: but we've got a long way to go.
7: Mm -hmm. Senator Seifoldt, what do you think lawmakers could do?
9: yeah thanks roxy for having me today um you know actually i think the commissioner stole a lot of my thunder and that's okay (laughs) because he does a fantastic job um but i will say that expanding a little bit on the the mention of the fresh food act that is a a bill which was passed last year and it steps in over a number of years the uh, requirement that any agency of the state that uh, provides food uh, purchase a percentage of that from locally grown produce and um, and meat products, so that gives an opportunity for some of the smaller operators to compete with the bigger out-of-state and sometimes out-of-country operators. So sometimes, if you can just get your foot in the door, that goes a long way with uh, with providing a nexus to growing large.
7: One thing I've heard from some farmers who sell to school systems is that they want a certain price that is really tough for small farmers. Is that something you all are looking at, is trying to ensure that schools and other state institutions ensure a, a competitive price to farmers?
9: Well, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, of course they, they have a budget to meet also, and we understand the challenges of that. And many times the, uh, the schools want to provide a meal which is inexpensive and easy to prepare, and sometimes fresh produce is more difficult to prepare. One thing that we've done throughout the state is stood up, and it's more in the community level. But I know the Preston County uh, has done this, but in an, an aggregation center where many of the local farmers can bring their produce in, have it washed, and have it prepared and ready for market. So that,
7: Right uh, in the classroom?
9: Well, no. Actually, it's, it's in the Preston workshop, and in fact, uh, then it's distributed from that point to the schools which are willing to buy. Interesting. You have
4: to get the buy-in from the local school system. And once the school, local school system buys into the program, then we find a little bit more success. But we're out there talking to those school systems, trying to show them the benefit that they'll have on down the road with the children eating from a, you know, locally sourced, a healthy food supply. Uh, there's so many different issues. If we get our children on the right path of, of a healthy diet, we can save money down the road on uh, healthcare and things of that nature. So, But it's also the, you know, it's like anything, it's a business, and, you know, people have, you know you're part of a competitive society and you have to produce a better product at a better price sometimes and that's the struggle that the farmers have in West Virginia but you know I'm proud of our farmers in West Virginia they're doing a tremendous job trying to meet that demand but sometimes you just have to go in and talk to whoever's going to be buying the product how much do you need and at the Department of Agriculture, we're starting to go into those areas and say, how much do you need? And then we're trying to connect the dots. One farmer might not be able to produce all that, let's say Mercer County with 9,000 students needs for that day. So we have to aggregate that as the Senator mentioned, Preston County is doing. And those are the type of things that we're helping the farmers do.
7: Right. I mean, big picture, I think a lot of people don't think, I myself don't think about where our food comes from very often. I just sort of take it and buy mm-hmm. it, and it's, it's great. We can go to the grocery store. Are there a lot of these challenges that small farmers in West Virginia face that are sort of out of, I don't know, our control? Like, our food system's really complicated.
9: I think that some of the uh, challenges that we face in our state and in our nation is that there's quite a bit of uh, Food which is sourced in other countries, you know, places where they can produce cheaper than we can because of the cost of living, more than anything else. And I suppose as long as the quality and safety is comparable to our country, it's hard to say no to that. And quite frankly, we always have bargain shoppers. People are always looking to save a dollar here and there. Um, but I will say that the uh, the market will drive, you know, the producers. And there's been a motion in the the last five to seven years probably to buy locally and we see those uh, posters around you know, buy locally support your, support your local farmers and i think that we're uh, doing some of that and we've revolutionized the way farmers markets are run in um, west virginia and i think is a step in the right direction
4: yeah that's uh, absolutely correct uh the other thing that has hurt us like when you talked about the apples uh, a lot of the apple orchard land is in the eastern panhandle. and That land has become very valuable and they've been able to make more money by selling their land to development than they have been. You know there's farmland protection programs throughout the state and those things are helping preserve some of these where they buy the development uh, value back and the land is held in perpetuity as as agriculture. We need to continue to expand those type of programs to keep those valuable things. The uh, Part of the problem with the orchard that was mentioned in the clip was, you know, they deserve to get the fair value of their property. That fair value was expensive, and the uh, turkey operation was a agricultural enterprise that could afford to pay that for the land, and it met the needs of their operation. So that's part of the problem we have. Is you know, it's just a matter of economics.
7: And farmers face a lot of the struggles that a lot of business owners face where they have to pay for their own health care. They don't get they don't it's not a job with benefits. And I think for young people, as Brian Wickline mentioned, that's just a real big gamble to to take your own business and have to figure out how to you know pay for those costs. What can we do to help ensure that young people are able to afford land and resources.
4: Well, as you notice, they also mentioned that uh, Mr. Wickline's an extension agent, so he has a job that provides health care, then he's doing his agricultural enterprises on the side, and his family is coming in on that. So what we have to do is we've got to get some of these uh, jobs. You know, when we lost a lot of our mining and manufacturing jobs, we lost a lot of the small farmers at the same time because Those people that worked in the factories and in the mines, they were also farming on the side. And when they left the state, we lost those farms at the same time. And it was family farms that had been in for generations. If we can get more manufacturing uh, jobs back here in the state, whether it be uh, a product or a food manufacturing like a, a milk plant or a... Uh, processing for frozen foods uh, that can source some of the things from West Virginia that will help too and a lot of these people will go back to farming even if it's part-time it's still an agricultural product for the state from the state of West Virginia that's good for our citizens.
7: Briefly, I wanted to ask, um, I know lawmakers are looking at the cider industry, and do you wanna speak to that, Senator?
9: Yeah, there's a cider bill right now running in the House of Delegates, which is really rather exciting. Uh, I'm glad to see that uh, for the first time now, the cider product is being viewed as an agricultural product rather than a wine product, Mm -hmm. even though it does contain alcohol. But uh, the best part of that is it's a value added. You're taking the apples, which aren't gonna make grade A, they're not that uh, pretty to look at, and the person might buy it off the shelf to eat uh, but you can press it into apple cider and then the uh, part of the revenue stream of that is going to go to the Department of Agriculture and uh, sorely needed funds uh, and I don't know if the Commissioner would mention this or not but I will say it that uh, he's running his operation right now on funding less than the level in Hmm. 2014 and they've picked up four additional programs in the meantime, so they're doing a yeoman's job with very little, and my hat's off to them. We try to give you a little help. Thank you, Senator, I appreciate that.
7: And (laughs) I think we have to wrap it up. Thank you, a good conversation.
9: Thanks for having us.
7: Thank you. Kent Leonhardt is the West Virginia Commissioner of Agriculture, and Senator Dave Seipolt is the chair of the Senate Agriculture and Rural Development Committee. Please join the legislature today, tomorrow evening, for continuing coverage of news and activities here at the Capitol. I'm Roxy Todd. From everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us, and have a great evening.